The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. How do you demonstrate technical trustworthiness? You demonstrate it what with transparency, accountability, and independence of evaluation. How do you demonstrate corporate governance with transparency, accountability, independence of evaluation, et cetera. It's, and the same with governments in a way, though there's less accountability there. But so the three ideas are transparency. If I know what you're doing and can see what you're doing, pretty darn well, that enhances my trust. It's not perfect because, of course, we all know about magicians who are completely transparent, but you still can't figure out how they palm the card. But corporations are not magicians. If they're open about their developmental processes, they're open about uh, their governance processes, that's a plus. But all the transparency in the world without accountability is really uh, just voyeurism. I'm Alan Rosenstein, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 10th, 2022. Modern life relies on digital technology, but with that reliance comes vulnerability. How can we trust our technology? How can we be sure that it does what we expect it to do? Earlier this month, Lawfare released the results of a long-term research project on that very question. The report prepared by the Lawfare Institute's Trusted Hardware and Software Working Group, is titled, Creating a Framework for Supply Chain Trust in Hardware and Software. On a recent Lawfare Live, I spoke with three members of the team that wrote the piece, Lawfare Editor-in-Chief Ben Wittes, Lawfare Contributing Editor Paul Rosenzweig, who served as the report's chief drafter, and Justin Sherman, a fellow at the Atlantic Council. At the end of our conversation, we also took questions from the audience. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 10th, Lawfare's research on trusting technology. Let me start with, with you, Ben. Can you just tell us a little bit about how this paper came to be? It's an interesting example of collaboration between industry and the, the research community. So I'm very curious, um, you know, how, how did this project start? Yeah, so that's it's a, it's a really interesting question. This uh, started when David Hoffman, who was then uh, the chief privacy officer at the Intel Corporation, called me and we had a drink together and he said, hey, there's this, you know, this problem that we're struggling with, uh, which is everybody talks about these, these companies, generally foreign companies, in terms of that their products are not trustworthy. But what does it mean? Like, what is, what is the actual content of trustworthiness? There are no 
basically agreed upon metrics. What some people mean when they say it is that they there have been bugs found in X piece of software or hardware, uh, or they have been compromised. What some people means is that I, I don't trust Huawei because they are from China, right? And uh, they have ties to the, you know, the Chinese government. And what some people mean by it is, hey, this company does not have you know, decent corporate governance. Uh, there are some other reasons, like I don't, you know, they're not transparent, right? And so, you know, he basically posed me the challenge, like, what would Huawei have to do, or what would you know, hypothetical company that you don't trust, whoever you are, have to do before you could say, okay, they've actually passed known international met metrics of trustworthiness. And so we, we were chatting about it and, and you know, he suggested that Lawfare might put together a group to study this problem. And so I hastily agreed and the rest has been a project that we have sort of worked on over the last couple of years. Uh, it was originally supposed to be a much briefer project, but the pandemic caused it to extend over, uh, over a fair bit of time. Uh, and so I asked Paul to uh, lead it with me, and we uh, and Paul is the, sort of the principal author of the of the paper itself. Uh, and we convened. I think it's a pretty incredible group of people, actually. You know, from technical computer scientists who specialize in. Uh, formal methods of proving that hardware is in fact doing what we say it's going to do, to uh, China tech specialists, Sam Sachs, to uh, a variety of kind of legal and tech policy people like uh, Danny Weitzner and Trey Herr. So it, it was a remarkable group of people who we just asked to think about what does it mean for an artifact to be worthy of our trust. Uh, and that's the genesis of the project. And just to clarify, you know, the relationship between Intel and this project, there were some Intel folks on the task force, but the product is the product of the task force rather than any sort of um, official position by Intel or anyone else. Yeah, so uh, there were two Intel people associated with the task force. Uh, one was David himself, who, uh, I asked to be on it because the question was the question that he posed. Intel did fund the project. And then the the second was a, a technical specialist from Intel who eventually did not sign the final report. Uh, she she served on the task force and she, I, I think, you know, made a variety of of interesting contributions over time. She was very involved. But she did not, at the end of the day, sign the document. And uh, so, the, yeah, the document represents the dozen or so people, 10, I don't know how many, who are listed on it. And it is uh, it represents the views of those people. And there were a number of people associated with the task force who didn't, at the end of the day, sign the final document. So let me turn to you, Paul, as the, the main drafter of this document, and obviously I have a, a, a lot of questions about the substance of it, but before I, I get into that, I want to ask, you know, especially since, since you were the one kind of in charge of thinking about what the product would look like, what were your goals 
for this product, right? How are you hoping that it is used? Because on the one hand, it's a very, or there are pieces of it that are at a very high conceptual level, but there are also some very, very specific tools and techniques and considerations. Um, so what is your, you know, what, what is your best case scenario for, for how this document goes out into the world? Well, I mean, that's a great question. And I think you accurately characterize it. We try to both start from first principles, but then dive down to something truly practical and useful. And so in my idealized world, which may or may not be realizable, we answer the question that, that David asked Ben two years ago. You know, what would it take for a company like Huawei to successfully establish a, a level of trustworthiness that you know, would justify using its products, at least in less than critical uh, domains of national defense or something like that. And my view was that if we could articulate those sorts of principles ex ante beforehand, then you know, that would guide both you know, decisions on using different types of products. And also in Washington, there's always the after action inevitable blame game that comes from any failure. And at least we would be able to arm people who'd made reasonable decisions with a, a justification for saying, no, no, you know, I really did think about this. It wasn't an ad hoc judgment as simple as, you know, China bad. It was a more sophisticated judgment that contextualized the product, the corporate governance, the venue, the use case scenario that we were putting it to. All of those are relevant factors, I think. You know, uh, early on, for example, Ben, I think it was Ben Ashley asked the group the question, would you use a pencil from North Korea? And, and you know, for me, the answer was yes. I think for some people, Ben Ben was like, maybe not, but, but it was more, I, I don't know, he'd have to just I would use that. a I would use a pencil from North Korea after it was x-rayed and tested for, you know, uh, Novichuk. Right. Okay. But yeah, so that's actually a, a really good way of defining a trust level in a in a in a kind of silly, trivial use case scenario. But it, it suggests that there's an answer where there's even cases where you would use North Korean products, some products for some uses with some level of, of assurance. And if after all that testing, somebody still died because they had a new form of Novichuk that we couldn't test for, at least you could say, no, I, I really thought about it a bit and it wasn't that bad a decision. So to answer your question, my ultimate goal for this project is that it actually informs people's decision-making uh, in America, in Europe, about the trustworthiness of things that are more important than the trivial example of North Korean pencils. And let me follow up on that. What kind of people are you referring to? I mean, there are people in the private sector, in the government sector, in the nonprofit sector. Are, are the considerations for those people different? I mean, are there different, should, should those people be using different checklists? Or is the idea that anyone who for any reason wants to think carefully and rigorously about this issue, right? No matter what their institutional setting is or their ultimate goals, you know, why they care about trustworthiness for any particular product or service. You know, this, is, this, is the, this is the thing for them. Well, my sense is that, I mean, we haven't articulated a 
checklist so much as a far more detailed and nuanced set of factors and considerations that people should take into account than we are aware of having you know, ever been articulated previously. So one of the things I really like about this is that it was both practical and also relatively new. <laughs> and so thus relatively useful. My view would be that as a first level, you know, somebody like Intel could use this at, to inform their decision-making about whether or not to include, let's not keep beating on China, but you know, say a product that was manufactured in Israel as a component of one of their, of their products that they sold to consumers. And it would also be useful, I think, for government decision makers who are engaged in decisions, not just about using tools in the government space, but also about prohibiting the use of tools in, in the public space. You know, we did one little case study that, that Justin was, was the author of about you know, how, how we might apply this kind of framework to uh, a CFIUS decision, a Committee on the Foreign Investment in the United States decision, and, and how it might expand the viewpoint. In fact, you know, one of my hoped-for goals in the next uh, six months, and Ben is probably hearing this for the first time, is to do a, a case study, uh, to take this framework and actually do something. And, and we won't do China because that's just, you know, and, and, I, and I, I had actually wanted to do Kaspersky because they had, and I, I actually had some discussions with them early on, because uh, that's a company that has been making a lot of efforts in the corporate governance space to try and justify trust, the trustworthiness of their products, notwithstanding the fact that they rose from, a, from, from the law and policy structure of Russia. Obviously, those discussions predated February, and that's certainly been overtaken by events, and I don't think it would be a sensible project. But I'd like to find somebody or some set of companies that we could talk about that we could do a, a legitimate study of this and, and test drive this in a, in a public way using public data and maybe even interviews. So if anybody's listening and wants to give uh, Lawfare more money to fund that, that'd be great. <laughs> so let's get then into the substance of the report. And I'm going to ask you, Paul, to, to sort of start us off here. And then I, I want to I'm also ask Justin some questions since he was also obviously integrally involved in the writing of this. So Paul, you know, let's just start with the basic terms. How do you define trustworthiness? And then what are the three categories, what you call the, the technical, organizational, and then nation state, basically, that questions of trustworthiness fall into, or maybe the three axes that you can think of trustworthiness as falling across? Well, so the first thing we wanted to do was define what it means to trust an artifact. And, you know, in some ways, that's kind of simple. Uh, it means that the artifact does what you want it to do and doesn't do what you don't want it to do. And, and, and that's a pretty basic way of thinking about things. And of course, just to put aside something, that also implicates issues of reliability that are are related to you know uh, natural phenomena, accident, and error that are not related to the trustworthiness we were talking about. We we're focused on trustworthiness as it relates to uh, manipulation and human intervention on a deliberate scale, not on the non-deliberate scale. But 
it turns out that there's more than one way to kind of prove that trust. And so I think one of the really interesting developments was our decision to kind of parse trust into two pieces, trust that is analytic and trust that is axiomatic. So trust that is analytic is the way that, you know, some people are able to actually formally test a piece of hardware or software and demonstrate to a reasonable degree of certainty that it, it does not contain a flaw of the sort we were concerned about. So that sort of analytic trust is superior because it's a formal testing method, but it is much harder to do uh, at scale. And so the other types of trust the axiomatic types of trust are things that the manufacturer, the supplier, the government, the government uh, under which the company operates can do that are indicators of trustworthiness, but are axiomatic in the sense that they don't actually prove it in any sort of formal way. And so that led to these three kind of buckets of trust. And one of the things we, we discovered as we began this project is that those three kind of buckets really don't talk to each other and hadn't talked to each other very much at all. And so one of the things that we wanted to do was try and pull them all together. The analytic trust is basically technical in nature, right? It asks questions like, are, are the methodologies that you use uh, for, for manufacturing something common? What are the sources? Are you transparent in the way that you've built a piece of hardware or software? Things like that. The axiomatic pieces are more about things like corporate governance. So does the company have a, uh, an independent audit function that examines the, the uh, efficacy of its operations on a regular basis as a kind of corporate governance in, in kind of modern day parlance is, is, uh, is security at the C-level, C-suite level or not of a, of a company. And then at the governance level, at the national nation state level, we tried to articulate the difference between American law, for example, and Chinese law, both of which very formally protect privacy, you know, quite pointedly. I mean, Chinese law is very clear that it does protect privacy, but nobody believes it. Why? And articulating that difference, I will say one of the most interesting pieces of this for me was that our, our European members have a significant distrust of American law. And so articulating you know, what the difference is, but, but they were more than willing to acknowledge that their distrust of American law uh, and policy was different in kind than their distrust of Saudi Arabia or, or Russia. And so articulating all of that is, uh, was a, uh, a really interesting proposition. So, so that was the, the structure, define trust, and then break it down into these three different, two different types with three different valences, and then try and then reconstruct the whole thing together to make a blended or combined or synthesized way of trust. So Justin, let me, let me turn to you next. L let me start by asking, we have this distinction between analytic trust and axiomatic trust, which is, I, I learned a ton reading this piece, but I thought this was a particularly useful concept. How do you evaluate these different types of trust. 
I mean, maybe axiomatic trust you can't evaluate because that's the whole point of it being axiomatic. You either believe in it or not. But presumably analytic trust, there are some methodologies to do that. And so, you know, can, can we say anything general about what are the better versus worse ways to figure out if you should analytically trust something? Axiomatic trust, as you said, because it's sort of taking things at face value, generally is a less robust trust mechanism than analytic, right? We mentioned some examples in the report. For instance, you could say, we're going to create a security certification, right? Or use a security certification for software engineers. If your company has 90% of its engineers with the certification, we can, we can say axiomatically that you know, your product's more likely to be secure. You can also think about the accountability mechanisms around that. If you take at face value that something's supposed to be protected, then, you know, reputational harm, et cetera, is something else to consider. But again, it's, it's pretty weak as a basis for trust. Analytics much stronger and so is synthesized. As Paul said, you obviously can't test everything when you're testing a product that's that first of all, even if you could would be too time intensive, but uh, you also can't because you don't know everything you should be testing for. You can basically do two categories of things. You can look at a series of possible inputs to a piece of software, then look at the outputs and use that. Or you can try and look at how something is running and then deduce security properties off of that. Uh, and so, again, there's lots of challenges with doing so. Some kinds of cyber attacks, like a side channel attack, you can't test through an input output. So side channel attack being, for example, data is accidentally leaked through some device process. That's not something you're going to catch if you're saying, well, plug in A and see what the output is. And so you have sort of all of these challenges associated with that. And we see this in a couple examples we mentioned where companies have tried to do this. So not to keep belaboring China, the, the you know, most widely known example would be the cybersecurity, the Huawei Cybersecurity Evaluation Center in the UK, where the UK government stood up this facility to basically get uh, code and access to Huawei devices and to run security checks. They've had security findings come out of that, but again, there's a question of how much they're looking at, how much they can access. Microsoft uh, did a similar thing about two decades ago, stood up a program to supply source code in a secure environment to governments to do security testing on Windows products. So again, it's stronger to do these, this kind of testing, as Paul said, than it is to take things at face value. So analytic is stronger than axiomatic, but you know, it's, it's still not, not perfect. And then synthesize just to wrap here, uh, as Paul referenced, is really bringing all of this together and saying, okay, we can't test everything. We probably shouldn't also just take things at face value. We're looking at a device that has a bunch of different subcomponents. How do we develop trust in the components and then abstract that up to, you know, synthesize that up to having trust in the, the device itself? Can I just add to that, that, you know, Ultimately, when you're looking at an artifact, you're looking at a, uh, a very complicated mix of a technical artifact, which is evaluatable as a technical artifact, a company that produced it that has its own virtues and flaws as a company, 
and a policy environment in which that company and its subcontractors operate. And so what we're saying is that each component of that, of those components of trust, have a kind of checklist associated with them that make that artifact more or less trustworthy. You will never get the binary, you know, the camera behind Paul's head right now is trustworthy or not. You will, or maybe that's a, is it a- Telescope. Telescope. Um, well, so uh, it's not an electronic device, but you, 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 it never reduces to a binary, but it reduces to a set of evaluatable metrics that make you more or less likely to be able to trust the item. Let me also just jump in quick and say one thing that really did strike me that was part of the discussion was that even the best analytic methods that you can come up with are in some ways axiomatic in their nature in the sense that you have to trust the tester, right? We call this the Volkswagen principle. <laughs> yeah, the Volkswagen principle, uh, I mean, which is a perfectly good example. And so even the best analytic methods, now probably, I mean, the UK's uh, Huawei Center is probably a good example where you trust the testers. And, and sorry, Paul, what, what is the UK Huawei Center? In order to sell product to the UK government, Huawei set up a testing center in the UK, funded by Huawei, but operated by the British government, and purported to present to the British government you know, the full panoply of everything that they had so that the government could basically test it to death, use analytic methods as best they could to establish the security of Huawei products. I think that, that the general consensus is that the results have been mixed at best, but it was a, it's an interesting effort to, to do the analytic side at scale in a way that is justifiable and useful. To, I mean, to, to, to add just to Paul's point, the mo one of the most recent reports did not have the bombshell you know, some in the U.S. would have liked that says backdoors everywhere, right? They looked and it basically was kind of crappily written code in here. There's some problems with like one of the big findings actually was that uh, security problems that were reported took way too long to patch. Like it just like not having the organizational capacity to actually keep up with security. So to Paul's point, like mixed results and exactly to the, the question of how much can you test? They did find stuff. They found vulnerabilities. They found issues with process. But you could also look at that and say it's still insufficient because were they able to go deep enough to find implants? Like you know, it's it's still sort of a tricky a tricky question. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually do think that Justin's point is is interesting. It, on the scale of the things that we were that we uh, the way we would characterize it, I would say that the UK's latest report suggests. That is a technical matter. Huawei is, you know, a B minus, and that it's made that the bigger problems they found were in its corporate governance, and that it just didn't have good systems for patching and and fixing, and that they didn't really find any evidence of the governmental deep intrusion implant stuff that is at the core of what people think about 
So, so it kind of almost poses the question, do you want to buy Huawei knowing that it's a relatively cheap product? And, and, the, and if that's the case, your answer may very well be yes. If your risk scenario is, is modest uh, and your, uh, your concern about being a threat. I mean, I have a Huawei phone here in Costa Rica for exactly that reason. I do wonder uh, how much of trustworthiness analysis just ends up with a, a rediscovery of uh, Hanlon's law, or it's that famous phrase that one should never attribute to malice what can be adequately explained by incompetence, because uh, that does seem to be the main finding of, of the uh, Huawei analysis. I, I want to get into some more case studies, uh, because I think where the rubber really meets the road. But before I do, Paula, I do want to uh, follow up with you, because the sort of analytical versus axiomatic framing is, is one way that you think through this issue, but you also have some other categories of trustworthiness principles, in particular things related to transparency, related to accountability, and related to independent evaluation that you emphasize. Uh, and I, I was hoping you could just explain a little bit about what you mean by each of those three and why you think they are so important as to kind of make into marquee organizational principles. Well, the interesting thing about those was that they, they seem to be, for all of us, kind of chapeau ideas that recurred in each of the buckets of trust, which is to say, how do you demonstrate technical trustworthiness? You demonstrate it what, with transparency, accountability, and independence of evaluation. How do you demonstrate corporate governance trust with transparency, accountability, independence of evaluation, et cetera. It's, and the same with governments in a way, though there's less accountability there. But so the three ideas are transparency. If I know what you're doing and can see what you're doing pretty darn well, that enhances my trust. It, you know, I, it's not perfect because of course we all know about magicians who are completely transparent, but you still can't figure out how they palm the card. But you know, corporations are not magicians. If they're open about their developmental processes, they're open about uh, their governance processes, that's a plus. But all the transparency in the world without accountability is really uh, just voyeurism. Uh, you know, you're looking for, for, for funsies, but you don't do anything about it, doesn't matter. So the accountability part of that is the idea that people who have problems have to be accountable for the problems they create and for fixing the problems. So that's a that's kind of the patching thing we were just talking about with with Huawei uh, at the HSC, HESC uh, is how they are accountable for their errors. If they have bad code, if a company has bad code and it doesn't fix it, doesn't matter. I mean, I mean, a very old example is back in in the early audies. You know, Microsoft had a huge stand down because their code was rampant with bugs and they never fixed it. So there was, you know, there was no accountability for error. And they've, they've transitioned their corporate policy in a really pretty useful way over the last 20 years to be much more accountable for that. And then the third piece of this was, was the independence of, of this transparency and accountability mechanism. You know, lots of companies have internal checking mechanisms. Lots of governments have internal checking mechanisms, but it's much better, you know, as a general premise 
towards accountability to have an, uh, uh, an independent outside agent. In the corporate world, that's KPMG or an accounting firm. In the governance world, that's, that's an a, a inspector general. You know, the model changes generically, and we, you, we couldn't you know, specify a particular model, but if a technical piece of gear is evaluated by an, an independent person, that's better than if you test it yourself and self-report the result. Doesn't mean that self-reporting is inherently bad, but it doesn't demonstrate trustworthiness as robustly as an independent evaluation. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So let's now turn to the case study that the report concludes with. Um, and that's about Grinder, the online dating app that came under controversy after some Chinese uh, firms made large investments in it. So Justin, can you walk us through what the concern was, how it was dealt with, and how the framework and analytic tools that you all develop in this paper can help evaluate specific case studies like Grinder, or, you know, for example, the controversy that came up at the end of the Trump administration with respect to banning TikTok, which is obviously a very popular social media site that is owned by a Chinese company. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the big thing, uh, as Ben and Paul laid out at the outset, is thinking about this beyond country of ownership, uh, when we're talking about a company, and thinking about a range of technical and legal and organizational and governance criteria. So uh, the grinder case is that as you said, there was a, a Chinese company, uh, Beijing Kunlun Tech, that had acquired a 98% uh, stake in Grinder, And so in 2019, CFIUS, uh, as Paul said, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the US initiated a review of this. The logic being, this app has all kinds of sensitive stuff on US citizens. You know, location, history, sexual health information, information about 
people's sexual activity. This is way too sensitive to risk uh, it getting grabbed by the Chinese government. And so after it went through this review, it reportedly asked the Chinese company to sell Grindr, which it did in 2020 back to a U.S. owner. So a U.S. group of, of venture capitalists now own the company. Um, and so that was sort of the decision structure was saying company owned by entity based in China, risk of data being grabbed by Beijing. What this review didn't do is actually look at the technical specifics behind this app. And the reason this matters is that uh, there was a Norwegian government report on Grindr after it was sold back to a US company that showed it sharing all kinds of data all over the place with all these advertisers and others, including a software development kit run by Tencent, the Chinese tech giant. Uh, and so you sort of get into the scenario where, you know, CFIUS did what it's supposed to do and CFIUS did what it could do. It looked at the direct ownership question. It said there's a risk and it acted accordingly. But the reason this speaks to this report, and I think why this report is so important, is we can't only focus on that. Because if we're concerned about that data getting into the Chinese government's hands, we have to look at the fact that the data is still flowing to China. TikTok, it's the same thing, right? The, the I mean, Trump's TikTok ban was a terrible decision and not even about security, right? It was, it was about politics. But but even that, right, sort of looked at the ownership question, was not as focused on technical specifics, was not as focused on organizational questions. That's not to say you can account for those things and that you should or should not change your decision, but just that you're having a less comprehensive view of the trust question. So I want to make sure we have some great questions in the chat, and I want to make sure to, to get to them. But before we do, I want to ask you, Ben, one final question, and I want to sort of go back to um, the discussion we started off with in terms of how this came to be. And the question I want to ask is, you know, the question of hardware and software trustworthiness obviously has a demand component, right? Consumers uh, of these products and services care a lot about whether what they're uh, buying is trustworthy, but also has a supply component. The producers have a incentive to be able to argue that their work is trustworthy. Uh, and that's true of and Intel, that their competitors' work is not. Exactly, right? And that's that's true of Intel, right? Um, the, the kind of inspiration for this project. So, you know, as you were thinking about this and as you were coming up with this analysis, how did you make sure um, that this, you know, was not intentionally or, you know, accidentally just chilling for whatever Intel's own trustworthiness practices are in the marketplace? So it's a, it's a good question, and uh, it's not a secret that industry sometimes uh, uh, puts together projects like this by way of, you know, laundering points that they want to make through organizations that are, you know, more reputable than they are, and uh, designing the project in a fashion that protects for that is important. So there were a few things we did. The first is that I you know, put together a group of people uh, to do it whose names spoke for themselves. The second thing is that I made sure that while, while Intel participated in the conversations, they actually had zero editorial control over the process uh, or the product, and that the project would represent the views of uh, a group of people who did not, you know, have Intel's 
interests at, at, at heart, although I certainly have no hostility to, to Intel's interests. Uh, the third thing is that I really made a point of not consulting what Intel's interests in this were at all. And I, I think Paul and the others really did the same. It's not actually clear to me how Intel itself would hold up against the standards that we laid out. But if, look, if the animating spirit behind uh, their request to uh, that we do this project was, hey, we think we are, we will hold up well against any standards of trustworthiness that a group of experts can put together uh, from a policy environment, from a technical standpoint, from a corporate governance standpoint. Uh, and so we actually want this work done because we will stand up well against it. Uh, that's actually fine with me. I think that's I, th that's actually if 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 that was the animating spirit from it, then I think that that's perfectly fine for for uh, a company that thinks, gosh, we actually make much more trustworthy products than than anyone else does. If if this is the spirit that Intel was talking internally, and I honestly don't know, we make more trustworthy products than everyone else. We want the world to be thinking about trustworthiness. Let's sponsor the, some research about trustworthiness. Uh, that's an area where Intel's interests and public interests, as I conceive it, may correspond. So, you know, Intel has, of course, had its own uh, problems uh, with uh, artifact failure and vulnerabilities. Uh, and so I'm not saying that was what was behind it. That all happened during the pendency of this uh, it is fair to say that the people from Intel who participated in this participated in a, and I think both Justin and uh, Paul will bear me out on this, in a very on the merits way and without ever referencing, you know, what they like needed to see from from a from a corporate point of view. So yeah, look, I I think all of these things are you're always not necessarily dancing with the devil, uh, but dancing with somebody who might turn out to be the devil when you do a project like this. And all you can do is make sure that the people on your side, you know, uh, are people who you trust to think about it on the merits. And I think I'm very proud of this result. And I would happily work with Intel again on the same basis, which is actually the strongest uh, endorsement I can make of their conduct in the whole thing. So I think we should go to Q&A. I'd like to start with uh, Alice Lee, who has two questions, both excellent. So uh, what would you like to ask? So I'll start with the first one. I realized that there's no mention of open source in this document. And I was wondering if that's because you think that they should be treated at, like any other software production or hardware production company and sort of company includes open source or if you think that they have some trust issues that sort of makes them a separate category. Thanks. I'll, I'll, I'll give a starting answer to that, Alice. I, I think at the, at the highest level, we were trying to define trust irrespective of sourcing, and that was the objective. So the decision not to specifically identify open source was a, a semi-conscious one that, that reflected the fact that uh, at least at, a, at an ex-ante level, we, we could not say we are confident it is more or less trustworthy. 
the, the can my candid answer is, is that I think open source scores high on some levels of the trustworthiness scale that we we want. It's it's clearly very transparent, for example, but diminished on others. For example, uh, many open source products are not terribly accountable. You know, think of the old Heartbleed one, for example, as a, as a, as an exemplar of of a failure to to patch and a and a, and a lack of uh, or or my own favorite. I used to use uh, TrueCrypt, an open source encryption program, and they just disappeared <laughs> one day. So I don't think that open source uh, is inherently worse or better. Uh, I think properly managed with the, with enough investment of volunteer resources. My own instinct is it could be superior because of its transparency advantages, but somebody has to take care of the accountability and some of the independence problems. Well, that, that's sort of my answer to you. But the, but the meta answer is, is we talked about open source and nobody was willing to make the argument that it was inherently better or that it was inherently worse on any of the scales we were talking about. So Alice, then how about you uh, go with your uh, second question? Sure. So my question is how much of, so when people talk about, you know, software supply chain, often that is not a consumer or not an average consumer anyway. Uh, so how much do you think that as some consumers require these higher trust levels, how much are those effects going to kind of trickle down to other consumers who don't care about that? And how much are there going to be, do, or do you think there might be separate markets based on trustworthiness? I'll give you my own answer. I mean, early on, Alan asked me what I hoped for in, in terms of this report. And one of the things that I had thought of, but I, I neglected to mention just because I didn't want to talk for too long, is that we actually develop markets in trustworthiness in the same way that we're starting to see the development of markets in privacy. For too long, products in this space have been all about ease of use. And, uh, and you know, that's a good thing. I mean, I don't want to diminish ease of use. In fact, that's a high value thing that I think will probably, that will actually, I think, probably continue to predominate uh, for a long period of time. People value ease of use more highly than they do privacy or trustworthiness, uh, at least at, at, at the larger scales. But I think there's niche, there's not niche markets, but minority sector markets for greater privacy uh, see Apple's boasting about its privacy uh, and encryption policies. And there's going to be, or there ought to be, markets for trustworthiness. And now to the extent that that's true, people who think that they can meet the trustworthiness tests or criteria that we've kind of articulated might be better positioned to say, hey, trust me, and trust me because a, B, C, D, and E. So I would like to see that market develop. I don't think it's very robust right now. And it is at the meta level of buy Huawei, yes, no, because it's China, yes, no, uh, sort of thing. And we, we're, I'm hoping for a more sophisticated response level. So yeah, I would just add to that, that I think uh, markets for trustworthiness are, are really already developing. And uh, you can see that it, across uh, a number of different, for example, uh, if you think about Google and the degree to which it has 
invested in many different levels of multi-factor authentication up to and including, you know, a kind of extreme, what it calls advanced protection, where they're basically saying to consumers, you know, you choose the level of trustworthiness, uh, uh, including sort of subcontracting your engineering security, your privacy security to us. That's a, you know, relatively recent set of developments. I think Facebook is paying a significant price right now for being perceived across a number of axes as, as not trustworthy, right? Particularly since 2016. Now, whether that perception is fair or not is a different question, but there are a lot of people who are upset by the lack of transparency of Instagram, Facebook, Twitter algorithms. And th these are trustworthiness issues. Uh, and I think the market is at some level at least bifurcating in the sense that large numbers of people are saying, I don't want to use products that I don't have some reason to believe, at least not for anything sensitive, leave aside the North Korean pencil, that I don't, I don't want to use products that are not, uh, uh, don't have certain indicia of trustworthiness. And I, I think the market really, part of the market anyway, is going in that direction. And that creates uh, an incentive for companies that want the high value customers, particularly at the enterprise level, uh, to, to think very hard about some of these things. So I'm just the moderator here, but I, I think about this in my academic work as well. So I, I actually have a thought on, on this as well, which is it's great for the market to segment out um, because trust, like any other value, it has some trade-offs, right? Um, you can make something much more trustworthy, but it's going to be more expensive. It might be less usable. That might be appropriate for some use cases. That might not be appropriate for other use cases. So we do, we would want to see um, the segmentation of the market based on trust. On the other hand, a pure market mechanism is not going to be enough to get to a socially optimal outcome because of the existence of externalities. If you know, I get hacked, um, that's bad for me, but I internalized that cost and I should have maybe bought a, a more expensive software, a more expensive hardware. But of course, if I'm carrying information on that device whose disclosure impacts other people, they're harmed through no fault of their own. And so that's why the solution, such as it will be, will have to be some combination of market, but also non-market and regulatory incentives, it seems to me. And I mentioned this because this actually leads very nicely into um, an additional question that we've been asked, that I've been asked to, to, to read out uh, here, which is, should our government have oversight over the private sector to make sure different technologies and apps are not an open door threat to our national security or our citizens? And, and just to emphasize, we're talking here about oversight rather than data access. So something like Grindr or something like the TikTok issue seems to fall under this, which again is, and I think an example of the government trying to step in, whether rightly or wrongly, in terms of dealing with these uh, externalities. So you know, let me ask this question, and then let me kind of also say, I mean, uh, maybe what may make it more concrete is, given the track record of the government uh, in using its authorities under CFIUS or Team Telecom or whatever else, is the government good at protecting us from these sorts of nation state threats. Let, let me ask you, Justin, since you know, you've know you been thinking about this and uh, uh, I, can see, I can see you shaking your head a little bit. Yeah, no, uh, <laughs> right, there's a lot of things going on here, right? CFIUS is an example where I said, as I mentioned, 
they have their authority, they've acted within their authority, they've done everything they can in multiple cases to address some of these trustworthy data security related issues. However, we have not filled in the other parts of the picture that other agencies or committees or whatever can tackle these other parts of the risk. All the way to the TikTok decision being an example of something that, as I said, was not about security. Trump said himself it was about getting back at China, quote unquote, for, for COVID. But you know, was playing whack-a-mole, right? Was not looking and saying, what is the framework like the kind we've laid out in this report? What is the comprehensive way to understand risk across the entire supply chain, regardless of country, or looking at every country at least, and instead, you know, is is playing whack-a-mole. You know, part of it, I think, is actually using a framework like this. Uh, I think the Commerce Department is is working on doing that now, right, with proposed rules for what trust in foreign software acquisition looks like. Uh, you can see published online drafts of, of what they're thinking. And so some of it is this like technical criteria, but again, I still think there's a, a lack of bringing them all together, talking about the tech and the policy and the governance all at once. So I think we have time for one last question. So let me close out our discussion with uh, this one also from the audience. Put yourselves in the shoes of a Huawei executive, let's say. You've read this report. How do you respond to it? Do you, do you embrace it and say, that's what we're trying to meet? You know, see, for example, our work with the UK government. Do you say this report is terrible? It's just uh, an attempt by American companies like Intel to unfairly trash us. Do you do something else? You know, what, what do you do you know, with, this, with this report? So I, I think the report raises some pretty interesting questions for a company like Huawei. So I think on the technical side, you, em you embrace the, the framework, which is kind of what they did in allowing the UK to do what they did. They basically said, we want to be totally transparent. We want to let you have at it. And ditto, I think, on the corporate governance side. Uh, and they subjected themselves to kind of criticism, as Justin, Justin described, and they kind of like opened up a fair bit. There is nothing they can do on the policy side short of what kind of Dubai Ports World did, right, which is ceasing to be a Chinese company. And do I think that makes them inherently less trustworthy than an exactly comparable, as Paul would say, B-minus company operating out of Belgium? Yeah. I do. And so and so if I were a Huawei executive, I would ask myself, what steps can I take to remediate that problem? Can I do my manufacturing in other jurisdictions? Can I operate? Should we like have an entirely new board of directors reincorporate in Ireland? Uh, which is basically, by the way, what Dubai Ports World did. It kind of worked for them. And so I, I think there are like the message of a of 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 a report like this. And I'd be curious if Paul and Justin agree. The the message of a report like this is to companies that are want to be trusted operating under the laws of, of authoritarian countries is eventually those two things are not 
ultimately compatible, not in the sense that you will have zero trust, but you will have, no matter how you do it, less trust than companies that uh, perform at the same level of technical and corporate governance sophistication and transparency and excellence, but do it from more congenial policy environments. So I would second what Ben said, but I kind of mutated a bit. If I were the Huawei executive, I would say I'm on the right track and I'm going to change myself from a B minus to an A plus or an A on corporate governance and technical criteria, and then argue that that's enough at least in some of the less critical use case scenarios, right? I, I would say, look, I've seen this, I've made myself much better. And look, I'm not trying to sell you my handsets to use inside the Pentagon. Uh, I, I'm not an idiot, but you know, all of this stuff that you're saying all the time, that's silly about uh, not letting me put my stuff in your train sets, in your, your well, uh, you know, metro rail train sets uh, because of concerns. You know, that's not a use case scenario that is at risk here. And so I, I think that, that I can get 70% of a market, 60% of the way to a market. And, you know, since, since I'm a more realistic Huawei executive, and I know that China is not going to let me reincorporate in Ireland, I'll take what I can get. And, and more importantly, I'll also recognize that, that the market isn't exclusively Western. And I, I will take this to, to Africa and I'll say, look, I've made myself an A-plus company on governance and technicality, and I'm half the freaking price of Ericsson or, you know, or Intel or Sprint or whoever my Western competitor is. And you're not my target here, so don't sweat it. And I'll also trot out a couple of foreign ministers who will make promises that your government will pretend to believe. And, you know, so I'll, I, and I'll, so I'll capture uh, Africa, South America, uh, much of Asia, and I'll let, and Middle East, and I'll let the, I'll let the Europeans and Americans and the Australians um, have an ever-increasing share of a, of a smaller market. Well, I think we're going to end it there. Thank you very much to Paul, Justin, and Ben for joining us. Thank you all uh, for attending. Thank you for your questions. And uh, we'll see you next time. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material Supporter on patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events like Lawfare Live, and other content available only to our supporters. On Friday, May 13th, Benjamin Wittes will be sitting down with experts to discuss the latest intelligence transparency report. What does it tell us, and what do we still not know? Please rate and review us whenever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. You can also buy Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.